The Tom Woods Show, episode 1789. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, social media is a pit of misinformation when it comes to the subject of guns. So what you need is my free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Guns. Smashes all the myths and a lot of fun to read. Pick it up at wrongaboutguns.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here by myself today. Just going to talk to you a little bit. It occurred to me the other day that what we're living through right now with all these restrictions and the the craziness and the, the cultishness and the irrationality, this is going to be a turning point for some people. This is going to be an inflection point. It's, this is going to be a moment where some people figure things out. They start to figure things out about the world, about the state. Now, a lot won't. A lot are forming exactly the wrong lessons from all this. But there are people who haven't yet found their voices, but who are out there, surely, who will look back on this moment and say, that's the moment where, whatever, I stopped trusting the government, whatever it is, I became a libertarian, something like that. And in fact, when I've talked, in fact, including even on this show, with various people and asked them how they became libertarians, very often they point to some episode in their lives, something that happened that from that moment on made them not trust authority. It's not always the case that I ask people this question and they say, well, I read such and such book and that made me think differently. It's very often that they had some experience and experiences uh, very often can trump what we read in books or at least they, they leave a more palpable kind of impression on us, let's say. And so I think given, frankly, the somewhat trivial examples of government overreach that have made some of my friends into libertarians, it seems for sure that some people will come out of this saying, yeah, I learned something very important about the nature of the state and how the world works and so on and so forth. So in bringing that up, I want to spend a little time here reflecting on my own turning points in my life. I asked people in my uh, supporting listeners group, which we have left Facebook, as I've told you a number of times already, we left Facebook. I'm still on it for personal reasons, and I have a lot of pictures and stuff on there. But my private group, the Tom Woods Show Elite, that's gone. And we're over on MeWe now. You will not be able to find the group on MeWe. It's an invitation-only group. So if you want an invitation, go to supportinglisteners.com. And I asked, if I were to do a solo episode this week, what would you want me to talk about? And I said, it's got to be something that wouldn't take me nine hours to research. And, you know, I love my people, but three-quarters of them were things that would have taken me nine hours to research. But somebody said, well, how about turning points in your life that brought you to this point where you see the world the way you do. And I got some juicy ones. I have a few juicy ones. Now, you may know one or two of these if you've listened to me forever, but not everybody has. And I want to start with something I actually wrote about in my newsletter over the weekend, just to point out that sometimes even the simplest, most basic insight can be what changes somebody's outlook. It doesn't have to be complicated. So, for example, I had somebody write to me who at that time worked in a, a music store where they would sell CDs and stuff like that. And he always had this feeling that they were in some way screwing the consumer. And then he encountered Murray Rothbard's doctrine of demonstrated preference, which he outlines in his 1956 uh, article toward a reconstruction of utility and welfare economics. Basically what he's saying is that when a uh, exchange takes place, 
It takes place only because ex ante, both parties expect to benefit. So if I buy a magazine for $5, it means I prefer the magazine. to the. I'd rather have the magazine than the $5. And the person selling it would rather have the $5 than the magazine. So we're both made simultaneously better off. And with demonstrated preference, Rothbard's point was that you can't show for certain that people are made better off, let's say, by some type of government transaction where one person is taxed to, to fund some enterprise. Well, maybe there are some people who benefit from that enterprise, but you can't say that overall social utility has increased because you've obviously decreased the utility of the person you've taken the money from. And there's no way to measure his loss of utility with the gain of utility from others, others because utilities can't be compared or measured. So the only kinds of transactions we can be sure are generating social utility are ones that are undertaken voluntarily. And this little insight about the nature of voluntary transactions made this person feel better about what he did for a living. Oh, okay, wait a minute. Both parties obviously benefit from all these interactions. So that's an example of something very simple that nevertheless made somebody look at the world with completely fresh eyes. So in my own case, it's not the war in Iraq from 2003. A lot of people say that had an impact on them. It wasn't the 2008 financial crisis, which made a lot of people look into the Austrian school of economics. I mean, some people looked at 2008 and thought capitalism didn't work as if capitalism creates housing bubbles when and we have to pretend there's no federal reserve system. It's not any of those. I was already pretty fixed in my views by the time these things came along. So some of my youngster listeners will say that those sorts of events got them thinking or listening to Ron Paul speak in the presidential debates, that sort of thing. But I was already well on my way and well-established as a libertarian by that time. So we have to go back a little bit farther into the more distant past for me. And for me, it really begins in the fall of 1990, which is when I entered college. And when I got there, I wasn't expecting to see what I saw. And one of the things I saw was a group called the Friends of the Spartacus Youth League. Or it could have been the Friends of the Spartacus Youth Club. I can't remember, it doesn't matter. And they had a newspaper called Workers' Vanguard. And they were actual communists. Now, I don't mean communists like when the Tea Party says Barack Obama's a communist or anything like that. I'm talking actual, card-carrying, legit, Marx, uh, you know, Marxist um, proposition-believing people. They absolutely were communists. And they had all kinds of critiques of the United States and its economic system and its foreign policy. I would run into these people every night on my way to the dining hall. And I just couldn't believe it. What? How could I was sort of like a moderate Republican at that point. So I was sound enough that I knew communism was probably a bad thing. But I just couldn't believe that anybody could seriously with a straight face in 1990 continue to advance it. There's got to be something wrong here. So I started to engage them in conversation. I mean, what a mistake, right? There's no way I'm going to change their minds at all. But I was pointing out because they were celebrating the Bolshevik Revolution and what a liberating event that was for so many different groups of people. And I was just trying to point out that the, I said the Bolsheviks almost immediately wound up building a secret police 16 times larger than what the Tsar had had. I mean, isn't that 
give you pause or you're concerned about that at all. In fact, I'm skipping ahead here a bit, but years later when I got a job as a professor, I had a Marxist-Leninist in my class. And I was talking about, I'm not going to let that stop me teaching the material. So I went through talking about the Bolshevik Revolution. And I mentioned that by the end of Lenin's life, there were about 70,000 people in concentration camps. And so he raised his hand and and thought that it was an objection. Thought, thought he was really sticking it to me by saying, oh, those were all just bourgeois people, like clergymen and whatever. Like the, So we shouldn't even care about this. I thought, are you sure you want to be saying that in front of a whole group of people? Anyway, so I had to deal with this these commies. Now, most people dealt with them by just ignoring them and going in and having dinner. Not me. I just couldn't do that. Just couldn't. It's just not in my nature. I just had to go in there and to go up to them and say something. And that is indeed what I did. And I found that even though I had all the evidence on my side, I just couldn't crack through. So then I would sneak a little, you know, side reading in so that I could get better at debating these people. Because I thought as if, if I just bring an overwhelming amount of evidence, they have to change their minds. I was still naive at that point. Because at that point, well, I was 18 years old. I was still kind of forming my worldview and I was open to challenges and I was willing to change the way I thought. I, I you know, I'm still just kind of a kid trying to figure out his way in the world. So I thought everybody was that way, no matter what age they were. And it turned out that was not the case. But that was one of the things, though, that got me into history as opposed to math and uh, related fields, which I had considered doing. When I got to college, I decided instead that history seemed more interesting to me. So I shifted into that because of the communists, basically, because of all the reading I started to do uh, over the course of my discussions with them. But also it, it did lodge somewhere in my mind the idea that there are some people for whom no amount of evidence is sufficient to make them change their minds. Absolutely no amount of evidence. There's not anything more I could have said. I don't reproach myself for having done a bad job. There's nothing further I could have said that would have changed their minds. And that did stay with me. You would think I would draw more sweeping conclusions from that than I actually have. You would think I wouldn't engage in fruitless arguments all the time having learned this lesson, but I still do it, partly because I want spectators to see that there is another side to a particular argument. Now, the second thing for me is another one you may have heard me talk about, and that was happening right around the same time. So the very beginning of 1991 was Operation Desert Storm, which was the first uh, Persian Gulf War. Now, my every instinct told me to support this thing. Why? Because it's a U.S. government military action. And I could not imagine the U.S. government behaving in any way other than righteously. Just as Roger Waters said on his album, Amused to Death, I looked at the news as being like a video game. Like I get to watch this in the comfort of my home, the amazing advances that the U.S. is making uh, against the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and reversing that. And I was very happy about that, but I was surrounded by revolutionary leftists, remember, because these are the people I used to debate with. And they were highlighting the human toll that the war was taking. I remember at the time thinking that that was very much to be regretted. I wasn't bloodthirsty. I didn't take any delight in casualties. I just thought it was a grim necessity. But just hearing about people being burned alive and families now having having no father and I just, ah, geez, I don't know. And, and then I remember there were, there was a Bob Hope special and, and all kinds of celebrations when the thing was over. And I just thought I could see celebrating, you know, the, a win at homecoming or something. 
and I and I I can understand in principle why a supporter of war would want to have a big celebration when it's over. I get that. I understand the logic behind it. But it just still struck me as cold. I mean, th- these people are mourning who knows how many thousands dead, how many families destroyed, how many kids left in poverty, how much property destruction, homes destroyed, life turned upside down for these people, never to be the same again. It just didn't seem right to me that we would be having a celebration of that. That just didn't seem right. So I was worried about this. And I've told the story where I, I went to see Professor um, Charles Mayer, M-A-I-E-R. He was a European history professor. And I told him about my misgivings and my concerns. And he was an establishment guy, as most people at Harvard were. Most people at Harvard were not hardcore Marxists or anything like that. I mean, you would see a handful. But no, no, no. If you're at Harvard, you're part of the establishment. You don't want to be some Marxist on the fringes. Why would they want that? No, they, they want to be part of the action. So they want to be just mainstream enough to be on the team. And that's what Professor Mayer was. And he said, well, there's an article in the New Republic you should read in defense of the war from a liberal perspective, a left liberal perspective. You should go read that. I said, okay. And that kind of kept me satisfied for a little while. But again, it just seemed like something was was off. Then I discovered who Murray Rothbard was, who, you know, most of you know, was the unbelievably prolific libertarian economist, historian, philosopher, Un- unbelievably productive and, and, and brilliant guy. And I found out about him. I was just getting to know about him when I read a selection of his in, of all places, National Review, Bill Buckley's magazine. Buckley had run a very, very long, ponderous article called In Search of Anti-Semitism, where he threw his friend Joe Sobern under the bus and he attacked the editors of The Nation and uh, he attacked Pat Buchanan. And Rothbard just wrote a stinging response to, th- to this, that's saying this is all an absurdity. And they had a, a, an insert in the following issue in which they featured a roundtable of people responding to the essay. And they took an excerpt from Rothbard's speech on, you know, that, that touched on this, and they put that in the magazine. And Rothbard was talking about how, how terribly badly National Review had served the right wing and how they'd gone off the rails and they were warmongers and this and that. And I just couldn't understand this. Wait a minute, what? I thought National Review was the standard bearer. So I didn't, I couldn't quite get that. And then Rothbard mentioned a, a magazine called Chronicles, saying if you know, if you want actual conservatives and not the fake kind who, you know, who want to remake the world or something, which is not in any way a conservative goal, and that that is exactly the opposite of, of conservatism as understood by Edmund Burke, then you need to read Chronicles. So I started to do that because they had that in the university library. And there I encountered all these people who were way to the right of me and they were more anti-war than anybody I'd ever come across because they, they saw how obviously and utterly anti-conservative war is you know, for the same sorts of reasons that, that uh, shutting society down over a virus is anti-conservative. The, the repercussions are overwhelming and not to mention there are you know, some moral problems with, with some of it and, and not to mention also that I suddenly realized that I believed that the federal government was engaged in all kinds of BS propaganda when it came to domestic policy. What's to stop them from engaging in BS propaganda about foreign policy? Why was I standing up and saluting and automatically assuming these were people of goodwill? I don't think they deserve that presumption. So I, I don't want to be part of conservatism, Inc. You know, I, I want to be a, a really independent voice 
who takes his ideas to their logical conclusion. And so I became anti-war at that point. So that was a major turning point. All right, before I get to the last one or maybe two of these, let me just say a quick word for my friend John Bush. I had him on last year doing a whole show about Kratom, which is a natural remedy made from the powderized leaves of the Kratom evergreen tree. And it turns out that people have found it helps with chronic pain, stress and anxiety, getting more energy and focus, even in some cases overcoming addiction. So you can hear the interview I did. It's one of the episodes of the Tom Woods Show over at tomwoods.com slash kratom, which will redirect to John's company. Well, a bunch of my listeners took him up on his offer to get an ounce of free kratom. The results have been pretty darn impressive. A guy wrote in to say, I've had really profound results, felt the best I've felt in seven years. The kratom helped me to quit antidepressants. There are story after story like this from a lot of different people. Yes, it's true, Kratom is not on the three-by-five card of allowable opinion, but the results speak for themselves. And John, who's been censored like crazy, is just now giving away Kratom for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping, and he'll send you an ounce to try free of charge. So if you want to see what all the fuss is about, head on over to tomwoods.com slash Kratom. That'll redirect to Brave Botanicals. Listen to my interview with John and take advantage of his free offer. That's tomwoods.com slash Kratom, K-R-A-T-O-M. All right, now let's talk about the final one. The final one for me was getting to know about the Mises Institute. And again, I have a lot of new listeners now. You've got to know about the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org, named after Ludwig von Mises, the great 20th century economist. And they have a week-long summer program for college students that I went to for the first time in 1993. And they give you a crash course in the Austrian School of Economics. And it was so elegant and beautiful it, it impressed me very, very much because it, in a way it helped build on an insight that, that we had learned in my mainstream economics course that had very much impressed me at the time. Very simple, just as simple as demonstrated preference. It was simply this, the role of the price system in allocating resources. So if you have, let's say, a, a superabundance of some product, let's say, and there's so much of an abundance of it that it's hard to make a profit in that. Well, you don't need to issue a decree saying, stop producing so much of product X. There's no need to issue a decree. There will be marginal firms that cannot continue because the profit is just not there. They make losses instead. And so they go out of business. And in going out of business, they lower the supply of the good because there's uh, there's uh, there's less being supplied now because there are fewer firms uh, doing it. And then they go and produce something else. And so then profit is restored to that industry not without anybody needing to intervene. Likewise, if there's a particularly profitable industry, people really are demanding something and there's huge profits in it, that is an indication to other entrepreneurs that it may be a good idea to enter that field. And so then they enter that field and in doing so, that brings the abnormally high profit there back down. So there's a kind of regulation of the economy and of production that takes place through the price system, which in turn is an indication of the array of consumer preferences. And this all happens voluntarily. This all happens without any central direction. That really impressed me. That's amazing, I thought. And then after being at Mises U, I realized that it's, it's not just the price system, it's all kinds of aspects of society can be self-regulating and that don't require the model of somebody with a bullhorn barking out orders at everybody. 
Now, I wasn't instantly convinced. I wasn't instantly converted to ANCAPism, let's say. But I thought, I can follow these people at least a solid 90% of the way. And the rest of the way, I'm not fully convinced, but it's an intellectual exercise everyone should have to engage in. And I guess we could say a final one would be 2007 to 2008. I was very surprised at how many people, not a majority, of course, I don't know how a majority of Americans would understand the Federal Reserve, stuff like that, uh, given that it's never taught to them, or if it is mentioned, it's in extremely reverential tones. But when Ron Paul ran for president that first time, and he got over a million votes, and he was taking a very, very radical position, we should, we should abolish the Federal Reserve, uh, the military-industrial complex is not good for America. Uh, he was saying things no one would say. And it, you know, people were saying he was a left liberal on some issues. Now, that just show, goes to show they don't understand his ideology or their own. He's not, it's not like he's liberal on some things and conservative on others. No, he's for liberty on everything. That was his position. And he thought the military-industrial complex was hugely counterproductive and expensive and corrupt. Like all government programs, hello, there's no reason to make an exception for this one. The, the most lethal of the programs is not probably going to be the most benign. You know, we need to have an open enough mind to consider that possibility. But he was telling people to read Mises, to read The Great Economists, and a huge number of young people started doing exactly that. And it impressed me how many people, despite all the propaganda from school, from the entertainment world, from the media, and even from the so-called conservative media, which has been misleading people and steering them down the wrong path for year, year after year after year, uh, she would never learn about Mises or the real greats if you were to be listening to Sean Hannity all day, that's for darn sure. Even with all this misinformation and bias and agenda, there were that many people who had somehow managed to escape it, who had somehow managed to stumble on the truth and were just sitting out there waiting, waiting for somebody to reach out to them. And then they responded. And then he got millions more votes the next time. More people woke up. More people started reading. You know, there, nobody follows Bernie Sanders and then says, I'm going to read X or Y book. That doesn't happen. You know, or no, nobody who's, who's following Rick Santorum said, you know, I'm really inspired now to read the the books by the all-time great thinkers. Ne never even, never would occur to someone. So that impressed me, and that showed me that there are people out there who think the way we do more than we realize, but the issue is I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> we, know, we know they're out there. I'm not sure exactly what the next step is, but I have friends who have been pursuing the next steps. We've got friends in New Hampshire with the Free State Project trying to get people to move to New Hampshire in order to have a political impact there. We have the 10th Amendment Center that on a case-by-case, issue-by-issue, state-by-state basis is trying to restore respect for the 10th Amendment and local self-government and nullification of unconstitutional federal laws. There are strategies certainly out there being pursued, but that is a topic for another day. Uh, for today, I just wanted to talk through how I got here and what were the major things that, that turned me in this direction. The first thing that got me not being a leftist was my working class father who, even though he wasn't a hardcore free market guy, he was a mostly free market guy. And he told me all about communism and stuff. And that got me uh, onto that track. And then these particular turning points, I think, helped to 
shape me into who I am. I wonder what the COVID fiasco is going to do similarly. That is to say, how many people will look back and say, that was the thing that made me realize that people who are presented to me as experts do not necessarily have my best interests at heart or are not as competent as I thought they were or are capable of doing enormous damage, whatever it is. And we can hope that that at least will be one small silver lining of the terrible ordeal we've all endured. Now, if you like and appreciate what I'm doing, I hope you'll join me, not on Facebook, but on MeWe. As a supporting listener of the show, you get benefits, including membership in that MeWe group called the Tom Woods Show Elite. But there are many other benefits too. Check them out at supportinglisteners.com and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.